So there's actually giant fucking cables just running from country to country through the ocean. Oh, yeah. And sometimes sharks attack them for no reason. <laughs> oh, my God. Welcome to the Mr. Bill podcast. I'm Anand Harsh, his manager, editor-in-chief at TheUns.com, and as of this summer, grill guy. I've been grill-pilled. All I care about is firing up the grill, cracking open a Narragansett Tallboy, and yelling at my neighbor over the fence about how much my lawn sucks. Originally, I was black-pilled by left-wing podcasts and became a doomer obsessed with eco-accelerationist Armageddon, but now I just throw on some briquettes on the Barbie and just chill, man. Bill's guest today is a dear friend of his, Donald Guy, who's a software engineer who produces music as DGAF and infrequently uploads videos to YouTube under the moniker DBG Mode. They know each other super well, so the conversation is all over the yard and covers some seriously interesting territory, which is just my kind of episode. Let me just take a second to thank everyone who's subscribed on Bill's Patreon. You're helping keep the show going and make Robert's head not explode from the nonstop editing he has to do in order to get two episodes out each week. We've had some really insane suggestions for bonus episodes, so please keep those coming because we're really leaning into the crazier ones. Uh, head over to patreon.com slash Tunes for all the info and to support this show. And remember to go to MrBillsTunes.com to sign up as a hardcore Abletoneer. It won't make you a better partner or parent, but it will make you a better producer. All right, that's it. Enjoy this episode with Donald Guy. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 cool man well fuck yeah thanks for coming on the podcast i appreciate you taking the time to do it no worries happy to be here cool yeah so before we get into conversation i, I just wanted to let people know how we know each other and it's through yarn uh and you guys met at uh mit uh, at the time she was studying physics and you were studying computer science yeah and since her introducing both of us i just feel like every conversation we have i learn a lot and um I find that you just have really insightful opinions on a lot of shit that I haven't thought about. And um, that's why I wanted to get you on the podcast because I think that you're really interesting. I hope that you are right because, you know, I feel like I'm not core to the material of your podcast. But well, I mean, usually, I know you've it, had some of your other guests, but like. Yeah, usually it's just me talking to someone else about writing music, right? And yeah, or, you know, it's usually producers. So we always have the perspective of a producer, uh, yeah. which is interesting i mean there's a lot of perspectives you can have as a producer but um i mean at some point it's nice to talk to people who specialize in other areas as well yeah and you know it's we got a crossover on that because obviously i have done some music production but basically none by comparison to most of your guests right right a lot um, more other stuff you uh, where, where, where should we start i mean we can let's start with programming i guess um yeah. what, what are you working on at the moment if you're allowed to talk about it. Uh, am I allowed to talk about it? That's a good question. Um, I mean, yeah, so I'm a contractor and so I do sort of work with clients and so I don't know 
what I'm super allowed to talk about. Um, I can definitely, I would say what I'm doing though for work is pretty is pretty standard stuff. Uh, the tool set I use is a little interesting, but like the actual work itself is, uh, you know, sort of your standard web app. Uh, the one I'm doing right now, I guess you would say is broadly without giving the client's identity away is in the area of, I guess, event organizing, right? You can think of it sort of like meetup.com, although it's more specialized mm-hmm. for a particular use case. Right, right. Um, and so what kind of, I guess, like what kind of things out of there to think about when developing a platform like that? Um, so it's an interesting thing, right? We were actually on this job. We were hired by uh, like a client who already had a thing. They sort of had half designed. And so we're doing sort of uh, following their lead on that. And so you can think of it as sort of like a spec job, right? Uh, and so it's interesting to like balance the interpretation of what they're asking for with like sort of what we think they actually want. Um, And it's also interesting right now with the world situation, because normally with software like this, what you would want to do is get in front of users sooner rather than later. Uh, There's not usually a big like unveiling, right? We can talk about uh, there's actually like a whole thing about software development methodologies and like approaches. And I would say what my company leans toward is what people would sort of call agile development, but really Mostly what that usually is about is like getting stuff in front of users and getting feedback and making sure stuff works in reality. But like, as I said, it's for event organizing and like we're in the middle of the pandemic and everything's shut down. So there's like, no. It's almost like, it would almost seem like there's no point in in making it at this moment. It does Um, seem a little bit like that, but (laughs) uh, you know, money's got to flow. And yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's definitely a lot of stuff you think about, right? But it also depends sort of how much of the job you're going through, right? In in software development, people sort of talk about uh, front-end and back-end. And like certainly where I work, we do all of the above. But this job is sort of back-end, middle. Like uh, there's an app that already exists that already has like a website. And then we're like adding new functionality that it like talks to behind the scenes to be able to do new stuff. So yeah. that, that I think puts the kibosh on some of the more interesting questions about like actual user interaction. Although I really always try... Uh, for these types of things to still like think about it anyway, right? Like your user is no longer the person using the website, but your user is definitely like uh, the people working at the company who like have to like write code that talks to this other code. And so you want to make sure the way you design, the way you talk to it is good, right? Mm, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about programming, but what it seems like to me is this kind of the levels of it. Uh, you have like the the conceptual level, like the you think about an idea and you're like, oh, that would be cool to make. Um, and then it almost seems like a lot of the process I see programmers go through is first step usually, and I don't know if this is the case when you're doing stuff um, on the level that you're doing it, but you know, for people who are just sort of doing independent DIY kind of hacky code projects and whatnot, it seems like the first step is just to go to GitHub and see if libraries already exist, like if somebody's already solved the problem for you. And then it seems like just a lot of sleuthing, right? Like you kind of get a library, you you put it in, some sort of um, code reading program. And then you sort of just try to get get information back from the code that's already there by just like sending print messages to like an inspector or whatever. It definitely can be like that. Um, There are definitely sort of different styles, right? And like you can make the analogy to music production that what you're saying is if you think about it, if you're going to make a song and you're like going off of some sample libraries, right? You're like scrolling through sample libraries and being like, oh, that kick sounds good. Like, this like I think it would go well with this hi hat. Uh, or if I put this effect on that, like it would go together, and that's sort of the type of coding you're talking about. And you can definitely go the other way, right? And think of it uh, 
in the analogy to like sound design, right? You can start with thinking about sort of the layout of how you... Uh, so like every problem, right? You're sort of making a mental map of the problem space. And you're sort of thinking about like, oh, I need to keep track of these things and the relationships between these things. And then you sort of can start defining it out in terms of the relationships between things and how you would want to store them and like what ways you need to be able to grab the data, uh, what ways you need to be able to like search the data, what ways you need to be able to compare things. And you can sort of uh, pull that out into, you know, uh, a schema design is sort of the word sometimes used in software engineering, uh, but sort of like a data design. And you think about uh, what that's going to do. And that can certainly inform like what technologies you choose to use, much like if you, you know, think there's some sound you want, you have some experience with some plugin, like for if you're doing more sound design, right, uh, that you like pull up Serum or you pull up the operator in Ableton. And like those are similar, for example, which is sort of maybe why I thought of them together. But like, they're a little bit different depending what you have experience with, depending what exactly you're trying to go for. I guess maybe like operator and Serum are a better. Uh, did I say operator before? I thought I said wavetable anyway. Uh, but yeah. Said, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you, you sort of go for that job. And so, yeah, I... I people have a very different approaches to this, right? Um, and I definitely lean more on that end. I definitely am trying to create, like, definitely I don't want to be wasteful, right? If I can think of a tool available, and I'm not saying I'm not going to go look on GitHub, but like, I definitely, sort of the first job often with a job like this is like, being like, is the thing I'm doing new? Uh, is it like, unique and, and enough that I want to put in the effort to make it from scratch? Or is it something that's super common that I definitely know I can go grab code for that that code's going to be good, that right. like it's going to be usable, that I'm not going to have to spend as much time figuring out how to use that code as it would take me to write it myself, in which case, mm. you know, it takes a long time to write it, but like you wrote it. So if you did a good job, you should understand how it works. Right. The other thing too, I guess, is um, if you want to like make the analogy between music production and coding again, it's almost like with coding, um, oh, sorry, with music production, there's all, like using samples to make a track. There's always a point in doing that, even if another track that sounds like it exists because you create another track, like another piece of music that is not 100% similar to this other thing, even though it might serve the same function for one or two people listening to it as, as you know, it's hitting the same part of their brain artistic, or, you know, whatever, like juicing the same receptors. Um, it it with does, a but, type it's of music. All... but with programming, it's like, your shit either just works or it does not work. And um, I mean, things can work well and they can work poorly. Like that definitely is the case with software. And it can definitely uh, depends on, you know, whether a project for something like a consultant, right? But even, even more so for a company that you're running, right? There's software that you have to... One thing about a song, right? I guess this isn't quite true. And in in when, you know, we live in the world of remixes and stuff. But like for the most part, uh, a song, you know, you work on it once and it's done. Something you often have to think about in software engineering. Uh, and I guess, I guess if we're playing the analogy we have been going for, this is like if you think about people sampling your song in the future, but that's a little bit weird. But like when you're building software and, you're gonna, and you know it's going to have a long life cycle, you do have to really worry about like uh, laying the groundwork for things you think you might need in the future, right? And so I guess, mm -hmm. you know, when you're making a track and you're not sure quite where it's going yet, you can think of it like that. But like... It, it it's open-ended like there's not usually a done point and to be fair i know people feel that way about music too but eventually like you're gonna master it out and you're, it's gonna be done unless you revisit it later like software and, and i guess that sort of happens with a project-based thing with a consultant but especially when you work at a company it's like you never know whether what you just finished is good for the like it has to complete the task you're working on but like you don't know if it's good for 
uh, you know, years or whether you're going to be back like adding stuff like in a couple days, couple weeks, like. Mm, right. Um, I have a question. <clears throat> uh, so there's this huge or not a huge argument. I guess it's somewhat of a big argument. And it, it specifically happens a lot in the music community. Um, the whole like Mac versus Windows thing. There's so many producers who are like, oh, man, you have to like I would never use a Windows like laptop live right i would only ever trust a mac laptop live or whatever and for me um i mean i've used windows for forever and i i've used a windows laptop at fucking i don't know at hundreds of shows and never had a problem and and the opposite i cannot say is true i've had plenty of issues using a mac laptop live actually uh but i had the question that i have and and i i before i go further with the actual question want to want to mention that like i don't think one is better than the other right? yeah. like i think i think windows is great i think mac is great like i think all of these fucking things are like way beyond my level of comprehension to create and i'm glad they all exist but um if there was only one operating system like let's say no other operating system existed ever except for mac os x do you think it would be as good as it is or do you think like having this these this competitor windows in the uh in the, I, in the same field of, of trying to sell a thing or whatever has like forced you know apple to to make a better product yeah or? i mean i think marketing and competition are definitely real things i think that uh you obviously like it, it is honed you have the whole sort of darwinian survival of the fittest thing one of the things that's weird though about uh this and especially where we've sort of gotten to with the operating system market right is that like mac os you can make the case uh and, and linux being part of the same family, like derived from a long tradition uh, that like some of it is literally the same code that like got written back in like the 60s and like has, you know, it's probably been rewritten, but like stuff's been copied over. It's been carried through, whereas Windows sort of, uh, I guess there was DOS and they bought that and that was a little bit different, but like it's in some ways a younger operating system. And and it's interesting how much they've been made to, for good reason, because people, you know, use both people ideas that succeed in one get transferred to the other, like we're sort of talking about, but like they're made to be very similar on the surface and they obviously have a lot of commonality, but like the deeper you dig in some ways, the more different they are at least uh, until you get to a certain point. And then I guess they sort of get the same again because you have to still talk to the same computers. Right, like yeah. You're still accessing the same hard or similar hardware, right? Like once you get down yeah. to the very, very low level stuff it's like you're still accessing an intel chipset and whatnot but it but it's part of that that was like you know for years of my life right uh and it's it's interesting how far we've come like windows was so clearly the default for everything right and, and a part of that was about the hardware right is nobody wanted and they were making you know a cdr drive say but like or and you know uh music actually has been less taken by this because MIDI was standardized so early on. But if you think of other stuff, you might buy some like a game controller, although that's maybe not a great example either. But like for a long time, it was like people would only write the stuff to make Windows be able to talk to their hardware. Nobody would bother to do it more than once. And so like Windows really did take its uh, its sort of monopoly for granted for a long time. And it only really lost that when people started caring more about like phones than they cared about what was running on their computer. <laughs> Right, right. So I, um, for the longest time, I just assumed without really knowing that uh, Windows was probably the better system for coding on it. And I guess I just thought that because it kind of looks more hacky and you hear this like idea espoused all the time that it's like a more customable, uh, sorry, customizable um, 
system and yeah, that's a, that's the thing people always say with windows right it's like oh it's more customizable mac just kind of has all these built-in shit that works but like windows you can customize it more but after hanging around with um you and Jan and uh other programmers introduced to me basically through you or Jan, uh <clears throat> i've kind of realized or you know you pretty much realized that you all use mac and yeah i mean did you want to go into the reasons for that also i want to um talk about how you worked at Microsoft and they made you use a Mac. <laughs> I don't know if they made me, but they certainly assumed I was going to, and they were right about that. Um, That's insane. Yeah, like, I mean, just, just to like not skim over that point, I want to like reiterate that you worked at Microsoft and and what, what, when you worked there, you used a Mac as your work computer. But it's, whilst it's also on. worth pointing out, like I appreciate the irony as well, although they did actually <laughs> make me use like this weird stripped down version of Windows when I had to like access... Uh, sort of internal stuff and it was super frustrating uh, but not because it was windows because it was like super stripped down to try to be secure but uh it's also worth saying that like this the software i was working on for microsoft was software that like was originally written at google and then like got open sourced and then like microsoft was picking it up and trying to commercialize it uh while amazon did the same thing and google did the same thing with the thing that they originally made um although like my boss's boss's boss I want to say by the time I left, because he got a promotion in there, was one of the three dudes who originally wrote the software at Google before he moved to Microsoft. So that's part of that. Like it was written at Google, where obviously it was going to be targeted at Linux. And so, uh, you know, I could have worked, you can work with it from Windows, but like it's not actually designed for it. But uh, talking about the bigger question, right? Like it actually has a lot less, I think, to do with like the design of the operating system. Um, although it, that does come out when you talk about like Windows being customizable. Uh, the reason it is that way, the reason it feels that way, and but also how it influences what people would say, even a producer would say, you know, I don't trust Windows to stay stable. And to be fair, there was that whole period, you know, Windows 98, Windows ME, where like it crashed all the time. Um, that's not the world we live in anymore, but it was there. And I think it's part of the same thing, whereas Windows, and this has changed uh, in some of the newer versions of Windows, but Going back historically, Windows was all very under the covers, was all very mixed together. Uh, and that actually derives kind of from being in DOS. Uh, going back further than that, DOS was always made to be a system that was run by one person on one computer, uh, like for a hobbyist. And uh, Mac OS derives from older systems that were used by like a bunch of people at the same time, right? Like a university or a lab would have uh, a big like mainframe and people would have like terminals and they would dial in and they would like have an account uh and they would need to like be kept separate from each other uh and so that's true of the way the systems in uh the operating system work together as well and that's sort of why it has the reputation of being less customizable because like it's things are kept apart things are kept sort of in their own like corner and like there are more rules about what can interact with each other that's also why you got less like viruses and stuff for a long time in addition to just fewer people using it but uh, it, like that is, is sort of where that comes around. And that's where that separation comes. But it also, I guess that same history sort of influences uh, why things are the way they are in terms of who uses what. Um, because Windows was designed for the hot or DOS was designed for the hobbyist. But then by the time you got to Windows, it was designed for the office professional. It was very much Windows was part and parcel to the IBM personal computer like the original product that was called the personal computer, um, the IBM PC. And like, that was what it was designed for. It was going to sit on your desk. You were going to use it for word processing, 
uh, like spreadsheets and, you know, later presentations later after that, you got in more of the, you know, maybe even like web development type stuff, making websites, making music, uh, those types of applications. But because it was designed out of for like that audience that you were sending it out to the general public, uh, they they made the business decision, right, to make the tools that you used to like write code and like make new programs and stuff were all things that you had to like buy from Microsoft separately. You had to like buy into the system and like be a Windows developer and like pay them for the licensing privilege to do that. Uh, whereas because macOS derives from an older tradition of Unix-like operating systems that were this like one big system that you had for, you know, uh, research departments at universities, uh, some like data processing departments, R&D departments at big corporations. It was just assumed everyone who was going to use those systems uh, was going to be constantly like writing new software, making new tools for themselves, little specialized things. Uh, and so it kind of, uh, the culture derived early on that it was all sort of free, all sort of included. Uh, not even necessarily free, but it was all included. Like if you in, if you bought one of the commercial Unixes, like it came with the whole tool chain to write new programs. Whereas Windows, you always, the person who bought Windows was buying it to use it. If they wanted to make stuff for it, they had to go back and pay more money for the tools to do that. Um, and it's actually, the culture clash is interesting and it goes back a little bit further. There's like a famous-ish story in early computer history. There was a, a group of people uh, in like roughly the Stanford area uh, that was a group of people called the Homebrew Computer Club. Uh, and the, famously, that's where Steve Wozniak premiered the like Apple One and it like sort of kicked off that thing. But there was a thing earlier in there where uh, it used to be the culture of those like hobbyist clubs that like people just passed around programs like they would bring in like their you know paper tape or their magnetic tape and like people would just like make people copies and give them stuff and like bill gates famously wrote this like scathing letter like against software piracy and everyone was like what are you talking about like software is free that's just how software works <laughs> like but you know then he made then he became the world's richest man for at least a long time <laughs> But so I, I wanted to go back to one of the things you were talking about, <clears throat> how you were saying some of the code in Linux or Mac OS has been like ported uh, forward since like the 60s. Um, so and I want to relate this back to music writing a little bit. So there's some things in music production, right, that are literally the product of having a slow computer. And one of those things is uh, resampling. So, you know, the, the idea is that Back in the day, you couldn't have more than a couple of MIDI tracks running at the same time. It was just too processor intensive for the computers at the time because, you know, we were producing on laptops that had like, you know, 200 megabytes of RAM or whatever. So um, not that. That's a lot. <laughs> well, not when you're trying to run Ableton. Oh, I know. I know. But I think you go back to like uh, the original logic, right? Like notation logic went back mm -hmm. like to the Atari and that was like, uh, you know, like kilobyte system. Right, and and all I could play is like fucking probably eight bit chip tune stuff, but anyway, um, uh, where was I? Oh yeah, so, um, because we couldn't run more than a few MIDI tracks at a time, what we would do is make one layer, and then we'd resample it to audio, and then put that in samplers and like mess with it more, right? And the result is like resampling, which uh, spawned tons of shit in electronic music, like. I mean, it didn't really just it didn't really spawn like sampling in the way that like they do it in hip hop, but it's it, it definitely spawned sampling and using resampling and samplers 
in the way that we do it in say like neuro like the shit that noisier does or the shit that like you hear in a lot of dubstep these days like that really growly fucked up like resampled bass stuff a lot of that came from 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 this right so i wanted to ask if there's anything like that that exists in computer science and i think um you've already like partially answered it by saying that uh there's there's code that has just been ported forward since the 60s but also i asked Jan this question and she was the one who was like i just thought of it when we were like cooking dinner one night and asked her and she was like you should ask donald this but her answer was um that the a lot of like a lot of old software uh because it had to be optimized for shittier computers now runs like so much better on current systems um so i just i guess wanted to get your thoughts on on that stuff yeah i mean there's a little bit of that it's sort of this thing right like the the analogy to resampling is interesting because you can think of that as analogous sort of if you're thinking like you have the midi information you can think of that like source code for a program and like a resampled thing is like a compiled version of a program and for the and like the version that runs and like for the most part uh unlike you know this is something that actually kind of when i first got introduced to resampling it kind of like surprised me that people uh you know and i understand why it's a good idea to make the constraints on yourself but like you know you resample the thing you like throw away the midi track that you were resampling a lot of the time i mean sometimes you save another session don't look at it again but like people like definitely coming as a software engineer when i got into music like i have this temptation to keep everything around and then it maybe gets too crowded but like so that's the thing like software uh depending what ecosystem it came from people tend to keep the source code around somewhere uh you definitely do have these interesting cases of like programs that got written a long time ago that people still depend on usually not big ones but like i remember when jan and i were at mit i was involved in this club there that's like it's actually MIT's computer club, which seems like a crazy thing to exist, but it's because it like goes back to the late 60s when like even at a place like MIT, it was a super niche interest uh, and it just sort of has existed the whole time. Uh, and because of that, it's called the Student Information Processing Board because back in the 60s, people called computer science information processing. That was like the whole field. Um, but anyway, getting back on the topic, I was doing, uh, they arranged through that. We did like a uh, tour of like one of the big data centers that runs the whole like network at MIT. And they were like, we were walking around and they're like, oh, you know how when you like go to connect a computer to the MIT like network, you get like this like website and you have to like go through and register your computer and then it like whitelisted and it lets you through. And the guy pointed to this server and he's like, yeah, the code, it, it's on there. We don't have the source code. Like it's just been running for a long time and like <laughs> nobody touches it because like, if we we still need it and like nobody can make it again so it's like this thing and, and you do occasionally have uh it's like a real niche thing because it doesn't happen that often but you do have some communities that like do take these like binaries and like try to uh like modify them after the fact and that's sort of and, and some of that stuff ends up pretty weird in the same way that like uh you know you get the weird growly noises of of modern uh neurofunk and and some of the weird genres it's just not that common but you do see other weird stuff uh one of the ways you get around this though is that like when old computers go out of fashion rather than like throwing all that code away what people tend to do is they tend to make emulators right in the same way that you have all these like vsts that emulate older hardware people just have emulators that emulate older computers that you run on newer computers and because of the way those work you can actually to some degree 
like it's not super super common but it definitely happens that you can take you know uh and to be fair, part of it is because stuff's been standardized, fairly standardized now for a good 40, 30 years anyway, but more like 40. Uh, but you would have like, you can run the emulator for the super, super old computer inside the emulator for the old computer and then like run that on a modern computer. Uh, and then that way people just keep using old mainframe programs. I had a guy tell me one time that like, you know, if you remember Y2K and everybody freaking out and like for good reason and it nothing really happened because people did so much work to avoid it. But where nobody did that work is these super, super old programs that were still running inside emulators, inside emulators. So there were actually uh, a bunch of like IBM System 360 mainframe programs that had super bad Y2K problems. And they like <laughs> didn't know what to do about it because they didn't have the code anymore. Right. They were just running like these old things. But yeah, there is some... uh to get to Jan's point, uh, there is some of the stuff, like if you run old DOS games in an emulator, they uh, run super fast. Like they they were designed to like actually use basically what you can think of as like the BPM of the CPU of the actual like clock frequency that like was how fast a computer processed like each step of the program. So they like blaze through it. So if you try to play some of these games, like you know, you push up and your character just like shoots off the screen and is fucking gone because they were designed to work on a slower computer. And that's why you also, I don't know if you ever, do you ever have a computer that had a turbo button? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think so. So there was a, there was a period in like the late nineties where, uh, because this was a big problem already, they'd like made newer computers that could go faster, but like programs were written to run on slower computers. And so the way they solved that problem for a while, when it was only a factor of, you know, four to 10, like, is that they just shipped the computer still running slow. They still shipped it running like an old computer, but it had a button on it that was labeled turbo and like had a light that lit up when you pressed it and you pushed the turbo button, your computer like went way faster. And so you toggled <laughs> it back off. Why don't they uh, just have that on by default because of the fans or? Well, no, I mean, they didn't back then because because there were still plenty of programs you were using that were assuming the computer was at, worked at the slow speed and so running it at the fast speed broke the programs all oh, right gotcha um i wanted to ask about uh like we're talking about sort of <clears throat> a lot of computer history at the moment but i wanted to ask about like maybe your opinions um because usually to to get a good idea of the future having a good idea of, of history is a good starting point um like where you think uh like I guess just the future of technology is going in general. Like, you know, do you think the interfaces that we have now, like this, the whole screen and keyboard and mouse and shit, like that kind of setup, do you, do you think that that's going to be the norm for a long time going forward? Or do you think maybe stuff's going to get moved into AR and VR and stuff like that? Or what, what do you, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, I think the answer is both, which is the sort of unsatisfying answer, but like to make the analogy to music, right? Like obviously there's all of, the crazy new electronic music and even as that gets more popular like people are still making like jazz and even like classical right mm. uh, and if you look at uh any general electronic song like to be fair there's plenty that don't but you like generally still cue to certain patterns that people are comfortable with of you know a kick snare like hi-hat type drum setup and like a bass line and and some melodic thing that stays in the same care category and i think in that analogy right like people are super used to like the screen mouse thing and it's and it's funny when you see some of it crossing over now we're getting to that point i'm actually not really into like vr stuff so i'm not the best person talking about it but i do occasionally 
at the edge, see the thing, right? Where someone's like, oh, I made this like sweet thing in VR where like you can, uh, you know, put like programs anywhere. You can draw shit everywhere. And they're like, oh, but then I like put a mouse in it because like you needed one to do stuff. Like, <laughs> Well, a lot of that probably is contingent on our biology, right? Like the reason we like certain kinds of music, um, and I've talked about this on the podcast a lot, uh, we like 4-4 four, four stuff in my opinion because we walk and walking is a two-step system. Uh, so, you know, it just makes sense that we would find 4-4 four, four or 2-2 two, two or 2-4 uh, or whatever as, as feeling familiar. And then in terms of why we like a lot of the sound stuff, like sound design and whatnot that we like, it's just because our hearing is biologically uh, sort of um, tr- truncated at 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz. So it's kind of the same sort of thing, right? It's like we have eyes, we have arms, like we kind of need to make the whatever interface exists somewhat related yeah. to that. Unless you can like really hook into the brain and get yeah, and that'll straight from that. That'll be the big game changer if it happens. And I don't think, I'm not particularly optimistic it's going to be in our lifetime, especially with stuff kind of as fucked up as it is. But like, yeah, if you ever crack like hooking into people's brains, like you can do... Crazy stuff, except like people just don't even think the same. This is one that always gets me. Like I have, uh, it's not, you know, like this is a self-diagnosis, but there's a thing you may see on the internet. People talk about uh, a condition called, that has come to be recently called aphantasia, oh, uh, which is basically about this. lack of like visual imagination. Uh, and like, that's my life. I don't really understand what visual imagination is. I like have to put a big asterisk on that because like I have some, certainly have some capacity for spatial reasoning. I have some capacity for like thinking about how objects look if I've seen them before, but like I definitely cannot picture stuff at all. Like, so like and- um, for instance, if I shut my eyes and try to picture like a beach, right? Like I can do that. You you don't have the Super no. To like that. that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. And I, it's funny because you can go on like, go on Reddit and like go to r slash aphantasia and there's a community there and you'll like, there's only a few th- thread types and a lot of people are be- people being distraught being like i didn't realize people could do this like holy shit like i feel so broken and like left behind um <laughs> and i and i appreciate that feeling but no i like i was a weird kid that i feel like even in late high school and definitely by early college i would just be like go up to people and be like hey when you think like what is that like like what do you experience like how does that go for you and i've gotten like wildly different answers um mm-hmm. like i have my like thing where I can say I can't visualize. And I, I would say that my the way I do do stuff in my brain, if I want to phrase it that way, is very like word based, very narrative based, very auditory. But like also I can't really like encode instrumental sounds as well as I can encode speech or words. But like I've talked to other people who like obviously they can. Well, not obviously because some people can't, but like can do the internal monologue thing. But like that they always think in pictures, like even if they're thinking about something very verbal if they're thinking about like the gettysburg address they're like uh which i don't know why i pulled that but like rather than thinking through the words they like are are going through like a series of images that they can like kind of drag back to you know four score and seven years ago well that's uh, a, apparently the way that you do um like crazy memory stuff you i've seen like videos of people online or oh yeah whatever. Where that's they're... one of the ones that set me off. I took like AP psych uh, in high school and they were talking about like method of loci and like peg word systems. And they're, you know, they had the memory palace thing. They had the like peg word system. They tried we, we to, should, is... we should talk about the memory palace. Cause like, that's an interesting thing. And I don't think a lot of people will have heard of. Yeah. It's also called, so 
I feel like Memory Palace got popular as a phrase after it was on uh, the BBC Sherlock, the Stephen Moffat one, because like they had him do it. But yeah, it is, I think, more traditionally amongst the types of nerds who would talk about it referred to as the method of loci, because it's like you walk around your memory in mm-hmm, your head. Yeah. Which So the idea is that like, let, let's say you came up to me and gave me a one dollar bill. And I looked at the serial number of it and gave it back to you and then tried to recite it to you 10 minutes later um, that I would have uh, some sort of sort of uh, environmental thing like attached to that in my brain where like the number zero might be a cat and I don't know, the number two might be a, a dog or, you know, the, the number 11 might be a door because it looks like a doorway or something. And yeah. I, I, you know, just associate certain things uh, in my brain with that and then uh, when I want to recite the number to you, I just sort of walk my way back through that environment in my brain, uh, basically reciting the objects yeah. I'm seeing's representational number back to you as I walk through it. It's interesting because you're like hybridizing the two things I mentioned. Like that to me, like you're definitely saying you're walking through a location. So like it is still valid to talk about memory palace thing, but like that is that like mnemonic assignment, like that sort of intentional, uh, yeah synesthesia sort of almost but i guess more concept to concept is much more like what people talk about as a pegword system for memory trick uh mm-hmm. and that also doesn't make any sense to me for the record but i totally believe it's a real thing to me I, a method I of low yeah I, I cannot do that either but yeah it, it makes sense i think as like a way to remember shit but to me a method of loci like it, it and the palace metaphor uh sorry that was pretty plosive um but uh i'm looking at this waveform going into ableton and so it's easy to get distracted <laughs> by that Uh, speaking of visual things but uh to me a memory palace is much more like people take memories and like put them in a room of a mental house and then like they can go look for stuff they can be like oh i know that i have that i'll like go and i know where i put it in my head and i'll like walk through that mental space and like go find it Hmm. and like that doesn't make any sense to me either but it like at least conceptually makes sense to me um because I can't even visualize stuff. Like, I really have trouble with that. But yeah, as I asked people this question, I had one dude, and I don't know if he was just fucking with me, but he was very insistent that, like, when he thought it was, like, a menu system, that he had, like, menus and submenus in his head that he, like, went through. Hmm. And, like... And it was know, when... Yeah. <laughs> it seems, like, definitely not the way that he... Like, because to say something like that, I mean, maybe he did, and maybe that's a very yeah. rare case, right? But in general, like, we all have you know, thousands and however many thousands of years of biology behind us, which has trained our memory in certain ways, right? Like up until recently, we didn't have like houses and shit. We live yeah. in caves and whatnot. So it's like a lot of the spatial awareness and all of that kind of crap um, just comes from that, right? Like it's comes from like the, you know, us needing to survive for 100,000 years in the wild. So we I like mean, developed all of these systems. It does. And, and, and you definitely can say- menus, I don't think like come into that. <laughs> oh, but like people are definitely like I, I forget whether I ever started saying this before, whether I just was thinking it, but like uh you know, there's there there are things that we're conditioned for. Like when you're talking about uh musical patterns and and like mainstays of motifs and like forms, like some of that is biological. I don't think you're off talking about walking pace. I don't think you're off talking about certainly frequency range, but like I think a lot of it is socially conditioned. A lot of it is learned patterns, like and as the world globalizes, it's it's harder sometimes to pull it out. But like if you talk about different musical traditions, different scales, different tonalities, like I think the same thing is true 
of potentially people's experience of consciousness. And I don't mm. really know that, but like, it doesn't seem crazy to me that somebody like, uh, like <laughs> there's the question, right? If it's somebody who grew up like before computers were super normal and they were like, not just like, like menus and sub menus, like weren't a thing. I don't know where they would even pull the referent for their brain to work that way. But like, if you start like, uh, you know, but I don't know. To be fair, brains change a lot over your lifespan, like just on a straight like neurology standpoint, uh, certainly in adolescence and then later when you're around like 25. Although by the time you're 25, it's mostly like culling. Like most of the connections are going away, not being created anymore. Mm-hmm. But uh, also uh, on menus and submenus, <clears throat> kind of just like an abstraction of us trying to like figure out how to compartmentalize uh you know yeah. lists, lists and items and shit into a way that would make sense for an interface like a computer anyway like it doesn't even seem efficient to like it doesn't but i don't know do like I'll, I'll say that i'm on the other end like one of the reasons that i can be interesting to talk to but also why some people can find me annoying is that like i don't do a very good job of indexing my own like memory like i have if you ask me questions about like you know what my favorite a time that i did a favorite thing like uh an early childhood memory like i can't answer those questions but like definitely when i talk when i see things it's very easy for shit to like spring to mind that i didn't even know was like in my head which is part of why i like playing like trivia games but like Hmm. i think that that's a weird thing like my i feel like my brain's not very well organized (laughs) even though there's a lot of stuff in there but yeah i feel the same way it's like I'll, I'll ingest like so many YouTube videos and podcasts and then I, you know, somebody will talk to me about something and I'll be like, I know that I've watched a YouTube video or listened to a podcast or both yeah. on this topic and I just cannot for the life of me like remember. What, yeah. The what weird the... thing is I usually can, like I usually can be like, oh, that reminds me of this podcast, but like I can't do it on purpose. I can't be like, like it always frustrates me, like personality quiz stuff if people are just like oh and they, like, if you ask me to make a list of my favorite things that's always real rough for me like huh. well not... um, what about what about this i have a question okay um what do you think the the most technically impressive software currently available is um there's that's a it sort of goes back to what i was gonna say which i don't want to just railroad but i, I do want to close the loop because that's also how my brain works what okay. i was saying with all that cognitive different stuff is it seems like it's really hard to ever to talk about like interfacing directly with people's brains because first you'd have to be able to work with all these different styles of brains and like maybe you can bypass that and go straight to like the neurons and like read the action potentials but like in that same way i think to take it back to the question you just asked right like it's hard for me to suggest there's any sort of total order of what is technically impressive um because like what people want is going to vary so much uh from thing to thing like i think they're definitely you know right now we're seeing a replay arguably of a thing from earlier computer history where you sort of have uh, a split of, of people talking more about making machines autonomous about people really leaning into the ml side reading into training models right like Honestly, uh, you know, I think Jan's like, uh, and to be fair, she was pulling stuff from Deezer, but like the Splitter, like real time VST, like it's not the most impressive thing, but it's really impressive. Like, mm-hmm. it's a really interesting thing that like somebody's trained these models to be able to differentiate like uh, drums from vocals, even though like it's also not impressive because it's a thing that like human brains can do, but we also can't separate them. So it's not <laughs> the same thing. But like, that's technically impressive in one way, and it's totally different from what's technically impressive about like things that are made uh, for and by and, and around people. 
like some of the, you know, like it's easy to go to, I guess, like a really like impressive video game that does a really good job of simulating something and tricking people is really impressive. But I don't know. It, it's all areas of in- interest, right? Like I'm all about, uh, that's not fair to say, but like my area of expertise has been around sort of how you coordinate computers, how you make them work together, uh, but also how you just keep them working well. And so like what I'm framed around, what I think is cool is not actually necessarily that impressive to other people. Um, right, because it's like server-based stuff and whatnot. Yeah, and it's like, the thing about the question is like, something can be very technically impressive in the abstract, but this is sort of the distinction that I draw between like art and engineering, certainly. Like you first kind of put science somewhere in the middle. But like, when you ask like what's super technically impressive, like it's interestingly like descaling and but like it's inviting a subjective judgment in a way that computer stuff often isn't. Like computer stuff is often not that there isn't cool computer art, but computer stuff is often judged in terms of suitability for a purpose. So like how impressive a thing is kind of comes down to like how many problems it can solve and like how well it solves a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And like, right. there's so many different problems that people care. And like, the more you care about the problem, the more you care about the solution. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. So well, I don't know that I have a good answer. Well, what about this question? What do, what do you think the, um, like the biggest or most influential computing feat is in history? Um, Probably I mean, the internet, right? I mean, yeah, a- I'm biased towards saying the internet, uh, not because it's technically impressive, right? Like there's a lot of fiddly details about how the internet works, but the more you learn about it, the more you're like, that's all it is. And also you're like, oh, it's really shocking any of that works because it's all very, uh, like, seems very unstable and very, like, <laughs> it's pretty, it's it's not surprising that you can, like, get, like, you know, a group of teenagers can go and, like, fuck up a bunch of websites because, like, it's just kind of tied together. But again, it's not about the implementation of the technology. It's about the implications, right? I think that, like, the internet's existence and the way that it's, connects people and the way that like reorganizes society makes it well ahead of anything that like is a computer that stays in one place that one person interacts with. And like now that we're like, you know, uh, it also opens up the thing, right, though, of letting all the computers access all of the other computers and all of the data, too. Right. So it I think it, 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 it it's cheating to say that it is that because it's really not about the technology, but it is about how you took all the computers that were isolated and you put them all to, you let them all talk to each other and also all the people talk to each other. And that is the biggest thing. And, you know, it's interesting to see, to be in this situation of this like pandemic and you compare it to, uh, I, I don't know a ton about epidemiological history, but like the analog people go to is the, uh, the Spanish flu yeah. pandemic of 1918. And like, obviously the world was very connected then enough to have like a world war well, but, they had like a newspapers and maybe very early signs of television, right? But like, not only did they not necessarily know to do I this level of radio, social isolation, they, they had radio, right? They did. Like, radio was definitely a big deal, but it was also, it was a very like gate kept technology, right? Part of the thing about the internet, and it kind of goes to that question about like the Unix operating systems versus the Windows operating systems. It's like. The internet very much like gives everybody the tools of communication and of mass market media, right? Like it's why you can have uh, to bring it back to music, right? Like Ableton's expensive, uh, all the dollars are expensive. Not that you can't pirate them, but like 
you it, once you've made music, you can just fucking like and like there's a plenty of art in marketing yourself, whatever. But like there's nothing that stops anyone from making music and then sharing it with people. Uh, whereas in the area of radio, you had to get it on the radio and there were only so many radio transponders. There were only so many ways that you could even hook up to those radio transponders and get that stuff out over the airwaves. Whereas mm. now it's all very commodified. Everybody has the pipe. Everybody has the tool set. Um, and in some ways that becomes more interesting as it fades to the background. And like radio got boring compared to the 1980s scene, like the early 19 teens, right? Like I'm, I'm of the understanding that radio was still like a big deal, right? P families like gathered around the radio to like listen to a show like, and that seems like a crazy thing to us now. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just think a lot about like, you know, we're doing this podcast recording. Uh, and to be fair, podcasts exist at all and, and are a good analogy for radio or older radio. But like, it's really cool that like, uh, you know, I'm in Colorado uh, where we met. But like you're in San Francisco and you've probably talked to other guests. I haven't kept track of where your guests have been. But I imagine people aren't local. and You can still like keep living your life and keep having weird experiences. And, and I've also been really impressed with all of the like uh, uh, online festivals as people have been framing it. Right. Like, yeah. It's been interesting to see that even though the pandemic has like um, shut down a lot of stuff, it's like, yeah, a lot of, a lot of shit has just transferred like almost immediately to the internet. And I've seen some weird stuff. Like it's interesting the way that people play with the format uh, and even ways that aren't like profound, right? You could have some crazier stuff, uh, and I guess an example of that is uh, the weekend before last. I know you were on another stream, so I don't think you got a chance to check it out. But Porter Robinson and Golden Voice and Brownies Lemonade, whatever, a bunch of people put together the Secret Sky, which is a follow up to the in-person Second Sky Festival last year. And mm -hmm. like mostly that was normal stream, but they had this like online environment where you could go and you were like a little line and you like flew around and you could change colors and you could jump <laughs> and you could mouse over people and like it would tell you where they were from. And I say people, but I mean little lines. And like, I was talking to a friend of mine about it. And she was saying that like, part of the thing that was really weird and cool about it was that it was this environment where you could like sort of interact with people, but you couldn't have negative interactions. Right. Like you couldn't talk and you couldn't like, they could be neutral. You could maybe find it boring, but some people found it really fascinating. And it was just like, you were just together. You just like had this sense of togetherness and like gathering and it was just like weird art thing. Uh, and that was actually not the point I was making, but I thought that was cool. Um, but I also thought it was cool on the Digital Mirage uh, Festival that Proximity and Brownies Lemonade put on earlier. Uh, I want to say it was like Chet Porter did this set where he just like uh, sat at his computer uh, and had like the screen pointed like over his shoulder and he just like sat there and chilled at his desk. I mean, to be fair, you stream on like Twitch all the time. And so it's not that different than that, but like doing it as this presented set that was like over the shoulder and him like typing stuff occasionally in messages. And like, uh, to be fair, a lot of these online festivals, because of the technological limitations, I don't know if people realize all these sets are still pre recorded. And so, like, you know better that like uh, when you have like these streams and people like get in the chat and it can be really interactive. Um, I've sort of lost my train of thought, if I'm being honest, but like, I do think the, the, necessity is the mother of invention is sort of the point I'm making. It's been interesting to go through this period and the way that it's pushed people to explore different things. And it'll be really interesting to see what sticks when and if we get to, if the world goes back to quote unquote normal.
what do you think it would take to destroy the internet? Like what, like what actions would have to happen besides like a meteor hitting the planet for the internet to actually not exist anymore? Well, I mean, so the first answer, which is a boring but factual answer, is a sufficiently uh, like powerful, uh, like yeah, sunspot type activity, like a sufficiently like I'm forgetting the word, but basically. There could be like a coronal injection, like the sun could like shoot off a bunch of energy. And like, despite the ionosphere and the shielding of the Earth's atmosphere, it could just like fry all of the electronics on the planet at the same time. Like, that's yeah. definitely a thing that can happen Damn. and might at some point. <laughs> and we like, is that like pretty? So if that happened, you'd assume it'd probably like kill a shitload of people too, right? Um, I don't know. I think it'd probably give some people cancer, but like it might like give some people some seizures, but I don't think it's going to. And it might give some people some heart attacks, but I, I, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, we have good meat shielding around our important electronics, <laughs> like better than uh, the power lines. Because it's like, I don't even think that like every computer would be fried, but like all of the power lines, all of the substations, all the transformers would be fried. We'd certainly have to rebuild the like global uh, electricity infrastructure even before we got around to talking about the internet. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I wonder like how long... Like where obviously we'd prioritize electricity first, but I, yeah, I'm curious like how long it would take to rebuild that infrastructure. I mean, what's interesting is you would have people. There would be some people who have advantages uh, because like people who have shortwave radios and generators, like if their masts didn't like spark out, could probably get back to talking pretty long distances pretty quick. Um, oh. But I don't know. I mean, the fiber would be fine probably. Uh, like the fiber optic cable, it's it has light in it. It doesn't have electrons flowing through it as photons that are flowing through it. So I don't think it would be as sparked out. And so the backbone of the internet might be fairly intact. Um, one of the things, if you learn too much about the internet, and this is changing over time, but like if you want to like see something weird, I know you're like on a computer right now, but I don't know if we want to bring that element into it. But uh, if you open a browser and you go to like inter- if you Google like internet cable map or undersea cable map, all right, I'm gonna like. Do it. Internet cable map. All right, and then go Google Images. Oh, so, yeah, submarine cable map. No, submarinecablemap.com. Okay, let me go check that out. Submarinecablemap.com. So, you're like, you see these lines, right? Is it loaded for you? Yeah, yeah, I'm seeing a lot of lines. Yeah. Well, you're seeing a lot, but you're seeing not that many. And those are all of the, like, transcontinental, like, internet connections and, like, phone connections that exist. Yeah. Like... So there's actually giant fucking cables just running from country to country through the ocean. Oh, yeah. And sometimes sharks attack them for no reason. Dude, I I had no idea this is how this happened. I mean, I assumed it was like some connection. I mean, there's definitely also satellites, right? And like Elon Musk is out there doing his Starlink thing. But like most of it's still these cables. Uh, And like definitely every so often, like one of them, a big one will get cut, like usually closer to shore. And so it's fortunately, therefore, easier to repair. But like it'll really fuck stuff up. And so like one of the things about the internet is it it's very widely matched, but it has a decent number of bottlenecks. Like uh there's this concept in the internet, uh in BGP and in, in gateway protocol stuff that there are there's a concept of a tier one provider. Now that I've made you go on the internet, like pull up Wikipedia and look at like uh let me see if I can actually find the title of the page, but like tier one network. Yeah, I think that'll do it. Like, and you scroll down, there are like 
there are how many are there on this list? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. So there are sixteen companies that like can what the definition of a tier one network is basically that they can get to any point, they can route traffic to any point on the internet without having to pay another company to do it. Okay. So the companies here, just so people are aware, it's like AT&T, CenturyLink, uh, Telecom, Sprint, shit like that. Yeah. And of course you see now that all these have these like parentheses, like owned by this like private equity group, a lot of them. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, and like, you know, Sprint owned by SoftBank, which is like, largely like the Saudi royal family and like some uh, people in Malaysia, like the the financial network that overlays the like uh, telecom network is like a really interesting subject in and of itself. Right. But like it it is interesting that like the point is just this, that this list is short and to be fair, it's gotten rather a bit longer in recent years. But like these are the companies that everybody else has to pay to talk to other parts of the internet. Uh, and every and, and the way that they talk to each other, if you see this column that says AS number, mm-hmm. AS stands for autonomous system. And it's basically at the top level, like when uh, networks like are deciding how to talk to each other, those are the numbers they're talking about. And they go into these big route tables that like are defined not by a technical concern, but by a business concern about like who's agreed, agreed to pay who, how much to transmit, how much bandwidth. Uh, and so, like, if you can get in and blank one of those tables, as occasionally has happened by accident, uh, like famously, I keep saying famously, but like Google <laughs> Cloud, if you compare Google Cloud to like AWS, uh, Google Cloud has had a bad track record a couple times of blanking their own internal BGP tables and making it so all of their own data centers can't talk to each other accidentally. Um, and then, like, all the websites on the Google Cloud go down, and it's great. Uh, and it's fun to watch from the outside if you don't work for a company that uses Google Cloud. But, uh, yeah, shit like that. Like there, are, there are definitely a bunch of weak points on the internet. Now, the question uh, is also: there's a difference between taking down the internet and like taking down the internet in a way that it can't be easily put back up, right? Mm-hmm. But like taking down the internet for a while is not actually that hard a problem. Uh, Crazy. But there's a limited number of people who have access to the things you would need to do it, and like if they're doing their jobs right, those things are not themselves accessible from the internet. You have to like physically be in a place, or at least on like a back channel network to be able to control some of those things right right cool well um i wanted to finish the podcast on a question that we decided we'd talk about on the podcast that you texted me about the other day and that is is music making more like making coffee brewing beer or writing code and it's funny that you asked that because at the time you asked it which was about a week ago um I just didn't know a lot about brewing beer, but since then I've actually learned a lot about brewing beer. And in fact, I'm about to buy a brewing setup, I think. So, uh, yeah. And I'm wondering now whether you like, it might be interesting given that I don't know how much longer you want to spend on this recording to jettison the, having the argument, whether it's more like writing code and just talk about the beer versus coffee side. So I think there are things that are interested to know. Um, I mean, making music, I think is, is in, I, I don't know a lot about writing code, but there is some like systematic processes to it and there is some like trying to figure out problems side to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there is, I think you can easily say, right. That if you compare like using a DAW to make electronic music versus like writing code, mechanically, they're obviously much more similar than, than brewing beer, making coffee, right? Like a person's sitting at a desk with a computer, pushing buttons, typing stuff, like maybe using another peripheral, but like, Obviously, at that level there. But yeah, through the thought processes, like you say, 
Um, to me, the reason I'm less inclined to say code is wins out in this argument is because like software, as we said before, like it has to have a purpose. Uh, well, it doesn't have to. Again, there is software art, and that's a whole separate subject. But like the software I, I ever write, right? Like you definitely have a very specific goal you're trying to achieve, and like not that people never write songs that way, but they just don't normally, right? Like. And uh, I think, I yeah, mean, I, along actually, the... I think I think you're wrong there because okay. there is a lot of people. In fact, I would say maybe like 50 percent of producers I know when the first thing they think, it seems like when they sit down to write music is how can I make a song that a will get a lot of plays on the Internet and b when I play it at a show will make people dance very hard. Right. So there's two like very, very, very tangible goals there. It's well, not, yeah, but like they're not they're not just thinking like I'm going to sit down and just fuck around and whatever comes out. No, I understand that. And, and that's a fair distinction to make. But I, but I'm saying it's not like so like I one of the problems I have uh, engaging with music is that like I want to idealize it as this like uh, to me, I always think of music as like in some ways an encoding of emotion. It's like there's a part of me that like when I try to produce music and I'm not going to be able to do this. And I don't know that there are many people who can like I want to be able to encode some particular emotional idea sonically and like that is too hard to do at least for me um and i and, and like and so maybe it's like having tried and failed or not even really tried very hard but having wanted to do that and and feeling like i can't do it that makes me less inclined to compare it to like when you write software you have like a task uh and the task isn't just like isn't subjective usually it usually has very specific and not to be fair i guess how hard how much people are dancing is also not especially subjective but it requires them to go through a subjective judgment in order for them to have that response right it's Um, almost like with code you have like this like very exact like litmus test as to whether or not you did a good job or whatever yeah and to me i think music makes a better analogy to either of these like brewed beverages because like there's a lot of little fiddly bits that are you can quantify you can be very precise about your process uh and you can have goals you can do this thing but like you want people to have a good time like uh when you make a beer when you make a a coffee roast like you want people to enjoy it you want them to like have a vibe from it more than you want them to like have a problem solved Although sometimes the problem is like, I'm tired, I need coffee, but. (laughs) Yeah, or uh, with beer, the problem sometimes can be like, I have a problem that I don't want to engage with. Yeah, alcohol, the cause and solution to all life's problems, as the great philosopher Homer Simpson said. Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) But yeah, I don't know. I'm curious in your research on beer brewing, like it's entirely possible what you know about beer brewing has now passed what I know about beer brewing, which is some like i was a craft beer guy i've been on a bunch of brewery tours but i haven't really done any home brewing myself yeah Um, so i I mean here's what i know this is what i found out over the last few days you essentially need to make a brew and then you need to ferment that brew and then yeah you you gotta make wort yeah you need to make wort which is the name for basically unfermented beer yeah um yeah there's a lot of weird terminology hey like for instance malt like yeah it's not actually malt like malt sugar or whatever it's it's just a mixture malted barley generally Yeah, it's just crushed barley and wheat or whatever. And then, um, yeah, there's like, a you know, all these other terms like milling and stuff, which is essentially just like crushing the thing. You can do it in a mortar and pestle with a rolling pin if you want. But a lot of people have these mills to do it automatically yeah. and stuff like that. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about it. Um, <clears throat> I think, honestly, to me, uh, if I had to compare it, if we're taking coding off the table and it's just yeah. brewing beer and making coffee, uh, I would say it's more like making 
coffee then because I don't think it's much like brewing beer. I think brewing uh, beer is, is a lot more like baking. It's like you changed sun. your answers. We talked about this via text message, though. What's, what's that? I said when we when we, we texted about this, you were pro beer over coffee. Yeah, I've, I've changed my mind, I think. <laughs> so um, I just well, think I can... uh, like brewing beer and baking, it's, it's too much of a science and it's not very it is a little creative, but it's more or less sort of like there's only a few things that will work. Whereas yeah. with coffee, I mean, there's a few things that will work, but there's, it seems like there's, and then again, there's I don't a, know. There's like a lot. Coffee is, like, coffee is the thing I know the least about here, but like, so I would say, oh, go on. Coffee has been my like quarantine hobby. So I've learned a lot about it recently, but I still don't know that much about it. Like when, when you were going to sit, when, when I was of the impression you were going to go for beer, what I was going to say about coffee is I think it has more people in the supply chain and you can make an interesting like analogy at least to a certain type of music production, right? That you have coffee producers who like grow coffee um, and that like the analogy I was doing there for say you're making something that's a fairly sample based music. Those are the people who like do sound design, like put together like sample packs and like have mm. it go through. And then uh, you have people who do processing on uh, coffee, which is like when you separate it out of the plant and make it into like seeds that you're going to roast later. And I don't know quite how that fits in my metaphor here, but I think, you know, certainly if you anybody, I don't think anybody does this, but if you had a sample pack, then you mastered your sample pack. I feel like that's where this is fitting in the metaphor. Um, but it's right. also just like, you can think of it as processing of if, if you imagine that you've then received a sample pack and then you're going to like skew the sounds to make them strange and, and more interesting. And then you have roasting, which like is the part that is more like uh beer brewing in this way right like you can fuck it up but uh there's still a lot of like options for things that you can you know do that there's there's recipes you have to follow but it's still a very subjective thing if you read people who write essays uh about uh coffee roasting they say you know you just are like experimenting constantly you're like constantly playing with things uh and you're uh trying to decide and you're like tasting things and you're trying to decide when you need to pull stuff out and like to me, you can either make that in the metaphor, like the actual, you know, sitting in a DAW producing thing, uh, or you can, uh, with the experimentation side, it, it's more of that. Or if you think about it as finishing the product from the grown beans, then you think of it as like kind of like mastering, right? You're trying to bring out all of the flavors that were grown into the coffee and pulled out and like make them really there. Uh, and then when I was going to still pull for, coffee is the final step that coffee is the step that beer doesn't where like somebody has to make the coffee like somebody has to like brew it into a cup uh and that's like djing or like playing a show or like using a sound system hmm. and that was my whole spiel that i had pre-thought about but you did give me something to argue about but i also thought about the <laughs> other side right the reason beer is a better fit is because beer has styles that are like musical genres whereas coffee has some variation but like if, if for sure it does i mean you have light roast and dark roast and stuff like that but if i i would actually still argue that i think it's more like programming uh yeah if, if it was between those three things and the reason why i think that is you know in this we've talked about already how you can use libraries in code and you can use sample packs in music um you know built doing a build is kind of like doing a render uh you know, releasing software into the world is kind of very similar. It's a digital thing. You can also digitally release music. Like, I just think there's a lot of similarities there. But I do think I there's think a lot of similarities, but I think the thought process is so different. Or at least I feel like being good at programming doesn't 
help me be good at making music like i feel like yeah probably not but then i mean having said that like i know a lot of programmers who are really good at music i think music is for sure its own thing i know i know some people who are really good at music and programming i know some people who are just great at programming and not good at music and i know way fucking more people than i can probably count who are really good at music and not good at all at programming i just feel strongly though that the ways in which they're mechanically similar make it so like i sit down and open up ableton and the way i want to approach the problem is too much like programming in a way that's not good for making music like i want to like pull up a a soft instrument and i want to like fuck with all the parameters and like but i don't i can't i it's hard i can't because i have to make a subjective judgment i decide when i'm done and especially if you're not you know you're building you're doing sound design you're not making a track like when i before you moved to san francisco one time i went and sat in the studio when you and uh Musar, is that his, how you pronounce yeah. that? Yeah, like Musar, we're working on a thing. And it was fascinating how y'all would doing sound design and you would just like, you would fuck with some parameters. And like the thing that confuses me is that you have taste, I guess, right? That like you're like, oh, that's good. Like we're good. We can move on. Like we can build something interesting with that. And like it seems so subjective. And that's why it feels to me more like someone who's roasting coffee and like pulls a sample and cups it real quick. And it's like, oh, I like that. I'll keep mm. it. Versus like programming, I always feel very much like I need to set specific sort of goals and sub goals and work against them. And they do like build back up to a thing. But like my inability to break down writing a track that way, like makes me feel like it's hard to pull, make a song. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. Um, Well, that's the thing. I mean, art is weird in that way. I think it was, fuck was it da vinci who said art is never finished only abandoned or whatever yeah um yeah I, I can't remember who it was who i had on the podcast the other day i think it was matt lang maybe and he had a really interesting view on that where he was like pretty much art is just basically all the shit that you didn't throw away he's like you when you get to a finished song it's literally just the process of like at each step of the way there's two good ideas usually or more and you have to use one right which means you have to throw out a bunch <laughs> so it's like basically you get to the end it's just the product of a bunch of art that didn't exist yeah um, but it's weird because like that does happen in software but again like you can have good and bad software that both objectively like do a th- solve the problem you needed to solve and like i don't know if you can say that about i mean you obviously can say it about music again if you frame it in terms of something people enjoy something people want to dance to there's wildly different songs that do that but like I always want to be more specific than that about what a goal for a music project is. And I can never quite figure it out. Mm. Yeah, I feel that. Well, cool, man. I think that's probably like a good place to wrap up. Um, But yeah, this is a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, I always enjoy going or here. I I really enjoy hearing the tangents you go down because it's just really interesting to me the way that you think about things. Yeah, Um, man. I appreciate you having me on. I'm sorry if I uh, talked over you a couple times. It felt like, but oh, that's I think inherent when you're yeah, especially with lag on the internet these days. It's hard to yeah. That's kind of why I didn't really want to do podcasting on the internet for a long time. But obviously, with the pandemic, it's made it sort of impossible not to if I want to keep the podcast going. So, um, yeah. But it's whatever. I mean, it's manageable. Um, is there any places that you want people to go to check out your work? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I assume when we tweet this, this will get tweeted out by you. Uh, you can just at mention my Twitter, which is just my name, Donald Guy. Uh, it, my current Twitter bio, uh, you know, links to 
what I have a YouTube channel, which you saw a video on the other day. That's linked. My SoundCloud's there. Uh, my name, Donald Guy, also on GitHub. I don't have a ton of public code. That's very interesting. But people want to check anything out. They can find me pretty much. Donald Guy is one word on the internet. Fuck yeah, man. Well, uh, yeah, thanks again. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, sounds good. Sick. All right. Have a good one. All right. Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded twice a week by Robert Fumo of 303podpro.com. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, Please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you. (laughs) 